Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group where we study the words of the Buddha. We're in volume 2, chapters 11 through 20, and this week we're going to be studying each of those chapters, and then I'll share some teachings on those, and then open up to any questions that you guys might have. Whether you're in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, you'll be able to ask questions by putting those into the comment section, or if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. This week, I'm going to just move right into teaching the individual chapters because there's one particular chapter at the very beginning, chapter 11, that I'd like to go through in a lot of detail for you in using the words of the Buddha. So I'd like to welcome all of you, whether you're joining live in any of the places that we're currently streaming to, or whether you're listening to this on the replay, I'd like to welcome all of you and thank you for your dedication and commitment to learning the teachings of the Buddha using the words of the Buddha. So I have some people here in Zoom that if you guys are interested in reading, you guys are welcome to read. I'm going to read this first chapter because it's just easier for me to read through it. I'm going to pause at each individual step and talk about each individual step. But if you guys would like to help reading chapters 12 and beyond, you're more than welcome to do that. Just let me know and I'll be able to uh, see that you're interested in reading any of the chapters. So this first chapter, chapter 11, is titled The Noble Eightfold Path, The Way of Practice Leading to the Elimination of Discontentedness. This is the core central teaching of the Buddha, the Eightfold Path, with everything else plugging into it. This is the path to enlightenment. This is how you eliminate discontent feelings and get to this enlightened mental state where the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, no longer experiencing any discontentedness whatsoever. So anybody who's seriously interested or has any kind of sincere interest in being able to get to enlightenment, they would need to know this path inside and out, backwards and forwards. And I teach this as part of the group learning program, but here in the Pali Canon and English study group, since we're just starting off, I would like to go through and be really thorough about teaching the full path so that you guys can understand this in detail and have an opportunity to ask any questions that you like related to the full path. So I'll go ahead and read this and then I'm going to stop at each step and teach it to you and help you understand what each individual step is. In what, monks, is the noble truth of the way of practice leading to the elimination of discontentedness? It is just this noble eightfold path, namely right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, And what, monks, is right view? 
It is, monks, the wisdom of discontentedness, the wisdom of the cause of discontentedness, the wisdom of the elimination of discontentedness, and the wisdom of the way of practice leading to the elimination of discontentedness. This is called right view. So as I mentioned, the Eightfold Path is a core central teaching, and other teachings plug into this. What the Buddha is explaining as part of right view is he's pointing to the Four Noble Truths and is saying that is right view. Understanding and practicing the Four Noble Truths is right view. And in the Four Noble Truths, you learn what is discontentedness, the cause, the elimination, and the way forward. So discontentedness is conditioned, pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant. These are where the mind is basing its inner feelings on some condition. Then the second noble truth is what is the cause of discontentedness? The cause of these conditioned feelings where the mind goes up and down and up and down is craving, desire, attachment, the mental longing for something with a strong eagerness. This is where the mind is basing its inner feelings on some impermanent condition. So if it's sunny outside, maybe you get pleasant feelings, you feel so happy, excited, elated. But if it rains, maybe you feel sad or lonely or bored or some other feeling. This is the mind basing its inner feelings on some condition. And the third noble truth is teaching you that to eliminate discontentedness, you need to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, training the mind to no longer have that mental longing and strong eagerness, basing its inner feelings on some condition. This is where breathing mindfulness meditation comes in, where when you're focused on the breath, you're arising this mindfulness or awareness of mind and you're arising concentration, being able to focus on a single object like the breath. But when the mind moves off the breath and you cut that off and let it go and bring the mind back, you're training the mind to eliminate the longing and yearning, gaining this inner discipline of the mind so that in daily life where you see the mind longing and yearning, you can cut that off and let it go so that it'll no longer base its inner feelings on some impermanent condition. Because as long as the mind is chasing after the objects of its affection with craving, desire, attachment, this longing and yearning, thinking that the next new shiny object around the corner is going to bring lasting satisfaction, you're going to continue to experience this up and down and up and down where you experience pleasant feelings for a while, but those are only temporary, so they're ultimately dissatisfying. Then you're going to experience painful feelings like anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, stress, anxiety, some other painful feeling like that because the mind's going up and down and up and down. It's basing its inner feelings on some condition. But because this condition is impermanent, the feelings are impermanent too. So as long as you're trying to seek happiness outside of yourself, then you're going to continue to experience this up and down nature of the mind. Because as soon as you base your happiness on some impermanent condition, then that means your happiness is impermanent as well and ultimately dissatisfying. So I used the example of a sun, right? The sun, it's not going to be sunny outside all the time. So if you get so happy and excited whenever it's sunny outside, then it's only a matter of time before it's not sunny outside anymore. And you're going to experience the other side of that, which is painful feelings. 
Or if you have this new pair of shoes or a new mobile phone or a new car or a new article of clothing or a new computer or new friends or whatever it is that your mind is chasing after, as long as you base your inner feelings on that thing, that thing is impermanent. So that means the feelings of happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria, they're also impermanent. So as long as the mind continues to do this, it's going to continue to experience the shaking up of the mind. So you're not interested in doing that. So you're training and breathing mindfulness meditation and practicing generosity of giving and sharing. This trains the mind to let go. So that now you train the mind to no longer base its inner feelings on some impermanent condition. Then you can arise this joy or this unconditioned happiness where it's just always there. It's just always present because you're not basing it on any condition. But as long as the pollution of craving, desire, attachment is in the mind, then it's going to keep basing its inner feelings on these impermanent conditions. And you're just asking for the mind to experience this up and down and up and down. But by eliminating the craving, desire, attachment, like the Buddha talks about in the third noble truth, now you can get to liberation where you have freedom of these strong feelings. You no longer need to experience the up and down, up and down. You can just reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy all the time, no longer experiencing these shaken up in this unsteadiness of the mind. The fourth noble truth explains that the way forward or the path leading to the complete elimination of discontentedness is the eightfold path. And that's where the Buddha makes it very clear that it's the eightfold path that is the path to eliminating discontentedness and that it's important to practice that in order to actually get to enlightenment. So you would need to learn it, reflect on it, and practice very closely to understand each individual step and then you will actually be able to make your way towards enlightenment but it all starts with right view if you don't understand that you're causing your own discontent feelings then what you're going to typically do is blame other people or blame the situation for causing your discontent feelings. And when you blame other people or you blame the situation, then you're gonna have a tendency to push these people out of your way or push the situation out of your way. This is called aversion, where you're not comfortable with your own feelings and therefore you're gonna push away the situation or the individuals that you attribute to having caused the feelings that are uncomfortable for you. Or the other thing that'll happen is you might be harsh or bitter or hostile in the way that you speak or communicate. And now those people choose to go away because of the way that you're interacting in the world. So therefore, you're not going to be able to remain harmonious with other beings because you're going to either be pushing people away or you're going to be bitter and hostile and people will choose to go away. This is due to wrong view. If you have wrong view, then you don't realize that you're causing all your own discontent feelings. But if you have right view, then you understand what is discontentedness, which is the three feelings, pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant. These are conditioned feelings. You understand the cause of discontentedness, which is craving, desire, attachment, even those pleasant feelings. It's the mind longing and yearning. If it gets the objects of its affection, it gets these pleasant feelings. If it doesn't get it, then it gets these painful feelings. 
Then you understand what is the elimination of discontentedness, which is eliminating craving, desire, attachment, that mental longing. And you do that through the entire Eightfold Path, which is what the Buddha explains in the Fourth Noble Truth, which specifically for craving, desire, attachment, you're training the mind with breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity, which are generalized trainings that are working to slowly eliminate this craving, desire, attachment in the mind. And you understand that it's the eightfold path that is the path that leads to enlightenment. These four noble truths should be really soaked into the mind. And if you aren't yet there where they're soaked into the mind and you can see clearly that you're causing your discontentedness, then reach out for support. I will help you through personal guidance or private messages or posts in the Facebook group, or you can ask questions here. And there's videos, there's other classes, there's books where I teach these, and you can learn them in detail because you wouldn't be able to make any progress on this path unless you deeply understand the Four Noble Truths and you're practicing right view. As long as you blame others for your discontentedness, then you aren't looking at the true problem, so therefore you can't actually solve it. In what, monks, is right intention? The intention of renunciation, the intention of non-ill will, the intention of harmlessness. This, monks, is called right intention. Some people translate this as right thinking or right thought because you need to have the thinking or the thought of these three aspects of renunciation, non-ill will, and harmlessness. What renunciation is, Renunciation is the willingness to give up and let go, to let go of false beliefs and misperceptions and opinions and views that aren't actually accurate. One of the primary opinions and views and misperceptions that the unenlightened mind needs to let go of is that other people are causing you to be discontent from right view. If you maintain that false belief or that misperception, then you're going to continue to experience discontentedness because you might either push these people out of your life or you might try to control them and get them to do things that you want them to do. And if they don't do the things that you want them to do, that's where the mind might be bitter and hostile or aggressive. So practicing renunciation is the willingness to let go of these unwholesome qualities and things that the mind is holding on to. The intention of non-ill will, non-ill will is actually a two negatives, which means it's a positive. It's the intention of good will. The intention of good will is to practice loving kindness or this active good will towards all beings without judgment, where you have this genuine interest in seeing others be well. This is an important quality of mind that you need to cultivate, which you cultivate in loving kindness meditation, and then you practice it in daily life through your intentions, your speech, and your actions. Then the third one is the intention of harmlessness. This is where you're uninterested or incapable of causing harm to others, because as long as you cause harm to others, that harm is going to come back to you. And you're interested in ensuring that you're no longer causing harm to others. This is part of the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect or action and result. As long as you're putting out harm to others through your intentions, your speech, your actions, your livelihood, this harm is going to come back to you. So you need to practice harmlessness where you're uninterested and incapable of causing harm to others. And this helps us to move into the moral conduct section, which is the next three steps. 
This first part that we've been talking about is the wisdom section of the Eightfold Path, building the wisdom in right view of what's causing discontentedness and how to eliminate it and what the path forward is, building the wisdom around right intention or the right thinking or thoughts of renunciation, non-ill will, and harmlessness. Then understanding that you're not interested in harming other beings because of this natural law of gamma of cause and effect, the Buddha starts sharing moral conduct that if you clean up your moral conduct, then you're not causing harm to others. So therefore harm isn't going to come to you. So here he's giving you unright speech, a genuine understanding or a general understanding of some various aspects of our speech that we can clean up in order to ensure we're not causing harm to others. During the lifetime of the Buddha, speech was the only thing they had. So he called it right speech. But today we have social media posts, we have emails, we have chat, we have text messages, we have phone calls, we have speaking to someone in person. So you might think about this as right communication and ensuring that you're practicing right communication in all aspects of your life. So here the Buddha says, in what monks is right speech? Refraining from lying, refraining from slander, refraining from harsh speech, refraining from frivolous speech. This is called right speech. What he's referring to here is four aspects of speech that you can clean up. And remember, his teachings are independently verifiable. You're not supposed to believe any of these things. You shouldn't believe any of this because it doesn't lead to wisdom. Instead, you're learning, you're reflecting, and you're practicing. So you can take each aspect of right speech here, lying, slander, harsh speech, and frivolous speech, and you can see in situations where you or other people did this, it didn't turn out well. So if you're lying, people are going to discover your lies. Your mind is going to be uncalm trying to constantly figure out what you said to who and when you said it. If you slander people, which is gossiping and slandering, damaging people's reputation, this is going to cause you harm. Harm is going to come to you because as you damage people through your speech, they're going to be interested in potentially causing harm to you. Refraining from harsh speech. This is the tone, the tempo, and the word choice of how you choose to speak with people. Where you've been harsh or aggressive or hostile or bitter to others, this is going to come back to you and cause you difficulties in your relationships. And then frivolous speech is also referred to as idle chatter. This is where there's a craving, a longing, and a yearning just to talk, 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 all the time, just talking, 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 talking. And this is going to cause harm to others because they're going to have to listen to that. It's unbeneficial. It's unpurposeful speech. And now people aren't going to be interested in talking to you or listening because of this unpurposeful, unbeneficial speech. So by you cleaning up all four of these, you're getting to the first layer of understanding with your speech so you're not causing harm to others, so therefore harm isn't coming to you. But what you would like to do is get deeper into right speech in order to get to enlightenment. You would need to understand the five factors of well-spoken speech and other aspects of speech so that when you're practicing to that level, then your relationships can blossom. Your personal and professional relationships will continue to blossom and you'll find very harmonious relationships. So you can look at conversations that went well and you can look at conversations that didn't go well and you can see where you weren't practicing right speech, for example. Next is right action. 
Right action is all about our bodily actions. And here the Buddha says, in what monks is right action? Refraining from taking life, refraining from taking what is not given, refraining from sexual misconduct. This is called right action. So here he's talking about three major bodily actions that you could potentially do that would cause harm to others. So therefore harm will come to you. So he's suggesting and guiding you to clean this up so that harm doesn't come to you through your moral conduct. Because if you were killing living beings or you were stealing or you were having sexual misconduct, this is all going to cause harm to others and harm is going to come to you. And it's the five precepts which it connects into this part of the Eightfold Path, which gives you more details on this. The Buddha talks about living compassionately for the welfare of all living beings. He doesn't teach to preserve all life at all costs. Oftentimes the unenlightened mind wants to see things as black and white. Either I kill or I don't kill. What am I doing here? But in reality, there's this gray area that you need to understand about living compassionately for all living beings. So of course, you're not going to go out and intentionally kill somebody just for the sake of killing them or based on ill will or something like this. But if you had a house and termites were attacking the house and chewing the house, if you didn't take action to resolve that, then you're not showing loving kindness to the beings who live in that house, including yourself. This house is going to fall down. This is why the Buddha didn't teach to preserve all life at all costs. He taught to live compassionately for the welfare of all living beings. So you might do some research to figure out if there's a way to get rid of these termites without killing them. But what you might come back to is like, yeah, the only way to really take care of an infestation like that is to actually kill them. And you might need to hire somebody to do that. But these beings are experiencing their gamma. Because they're causing harm, harm is coming to them. And this is why being in the animal realm is so difficult because they lack the wisdom to understand what it is that they're doing. And they oftentimes are killed over and over and over and over and over again because they're out there causing harm like taking life. Just like a lion or a hyena or some other animal like a snake, they're constantly killing. And this is why it's very hard to get out of the animal realm. Refraining from taking what is not given is all about stealing and taking things from people. And the Buddha goes into a lot of detail about this as part of the five precepts that you would be interested to learn using the words of the Buddha so that you can see what he taught about this. And same thing with sexual misconduct. He talks about harmful sexual misconduct. Things like having sex with minors. Things like having sex with multiple partners. Things like going outside of your relationship or having sex with somebody who's in a relationship themselves or someone who's chosen to be celibate for the sake of getting closer and closer to enlightenment, then he's teaching to not attempt to have sex with these individuals. Because if you're causing harm through your sexual activity, then this harm is going to come back to you. Like if you raped somebody, for example, this is going to bring about harm to you. It's important to understand that as part of the teachings on sexual misconduct, the Buddha didn't teach that same gender relationships are harmful. So if two men or two women are having sex together, they're loving, consenting, loyal adults, who are they harming? 
they're not harming anybody. So that's why he didn't put it into the five precepts or into the Eightfold Path that it would be unwise or harmful to have sex with the same gender because there is no harm in that. And if you understand the universal truth of impermanence, then you know that it's impossible for every man to be interested in having sex with a female, or it's impossible for every female to be interested in having sex with a man. That would be permanence if that existed. The challenge that the world is facing is there's people in the world who crave and long and yearn for all men to have sex with women and all women to have sex with men. But this isn't possible because of the universal truth of impermanence. If you look around you, there aren't things that are permanent. The weather constantly is changing. Your hair is changing. Your body's changing. Your job is changing. Your income is changing. All these things are complete change experiencing the universal truth of impermanence. So who someone chooses to have sex with is based on their own decisions and having sex within the same gender isn't causing actual harm. And you can see this in the teachings of the Buddha because as the five precepts, he doesn't teach that it's harmful to have sex with the same gender. This is how awake he was. This is how wise he was 2,500 years ago that he understood this. When today we have people that don't even understand this as part of their existence today. And the Buddha was aware of people who preferred same gender relationships. He actually talks about women who don't identify with feminine qualities, men who don't identify with masculine qualities. He talks about this in his teachings, but he doesn't have any teaching on it other than to observe that it exists because there's nothing wrong with that. It's completely normal that not every being who is born with male sexual organs are going to identify with being male. And not every female who's born with female sexual organs is going to identify as being female. So the mind and the body are two different things. And if you understand the cycle of rebirth that we've all been countless beings in the past, then whatever gender you are now, you've been other genders in the past. So it's very understandable with the universal truth of impermanence, with the cycle of rebirth, that any being who exists today, they may or may not identify with being the same gender as their sexual organs, and they may or may not be interested in having sex with somebody of the opposite gender. So this is understandable through all the teachings of the Buddha, and there you can see what he actually taught in the five precepts around sexual misconduct because he goes into it in detail. This particular step of right action is all about not causing harm through your bodily actions. If you're causing harm through your bodily actions, then that harm is gonna come back to you. And here he gives three major ones, but he's not gonna list out every single bodily action that you could potentially do that would cause harm. That would be way too much information and there's certain things that we do today that didn't happen during his lifetime. Like if you were on an airplane and you dragged your suitcase through the aisle of a plane and you ran over people's feet and bumped into their knees, this is gonna cause harm and there's a potential for someone to get hostile and irritated and potentially attack you on this airplane. But airplanes and suitcases didn't exist during the lifetime of the Buddha, so he didn't list out every single thing. He didn't say don't walk up to somebody and punch them in the face. If you understand what right action is, which is not causing harm through your bodily actions, then you'll start navigating this world, ensuring that you're not causing harm through your bodily actions and the way that you move your body about. The fifth step or the fifth factor of the Eightfold Path is called 
livelihood or right livelihood. What a livelihood is, is how you choose to sustain your life. And the Buddha says, in what monks is right livelihood? Here monks, the noble disciple, having given up wrong livelihood, keeps himself by right livelihood. Here he's explaining in other parts of his teachings about ensuring that we're not causing harm through our livelihood. Here he's just giving a very general information and essentially you look to his other teachings to see the detail in this. The first thing that you start to understand around livelihood are five trades that he talks about that would cause harm if you chose to practice any of those because you're not interested in basing your livelihood and your income and the way you sustain your life based on harming other beings. So he talks about business and weapons, business and living beings, business and meat, business and substances that cause heedlessness, and business and poisons. If you end up practicing any of these trades or having business in any of these things, you can see that you're going to experience harm. And you can look at either jobs that you've had in the past based on these, or you can look at people who are currently functioning in those roles now, any of those five occupations, and you can see that they're causing harm and harm is coming to them. You could just take a simple one like substances that cause heedlessness. If you stand on the street corner selling cocaine or heroin or crystal meth or any of these kind of things, you're gonna probably get robbed, beat up, you might get arrested, you might get murdered, uh, you might even get addicted to your own substances. These things are going to happen as a result of selling substances that cause heedlessness. But these particular teachings of the Buddha, they're based on the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect. This is a much higher law than the law that we have as humans. As humans, yes, it's illegal to sell cocaine, heroin, or crystal meth on the street corner, but it is legal to sell alcohol. But if you understand that you're not necessarily looking at the human laws, you are interested in practicing the natural law of gamma, which is a much higher law than the human laws. Because if you worked in a liquor store, for example, you have a higher chance of getting robbed, getting beat up, getting murdered. You can have these problems occur because these kind of places tend to get robbed and people come in there and murder people and these things happen as a result of working in a place like a liquor store. So even though it's legal for you to be a cashier or work at a liquor store, it would be unwise if you understand the natural law of gamma of cause and effect. So the more that you learn the right livelihood, you can see these things more and more clearly. And the Buddha makes other teachings available to you that you can see right livelihood more and more clearly. What he eventually helps you to see is that it's important to cultivate a livelihood where you have enthusiasm, you have motivation, where you're not affected by craving anger and ignorance, where you're just chasing after money or you're chasing after a certain title or a job or something like this. Instead, you're providing a certain product or service that you feel enthused about, that you have motivation about, that you're encouraged to do this. In this way, you could potentially do this occupation without any interest in any kind of payment, even if you had to. Not that you would be able to do that necessarily, but you should get to a point with your livelihood that you're so motivated and you're so enthused about this livelihood that if it was possible for you to do it for free, you would. 
And that's how you know that you've gotten to a right livelihood, that you really enjoy this work and you feel motivated to provide this product or service to the community that you're providing it to. And this is how you will know that your livelihood has been purified. And then there's other teachings in terms of corruption and flattering people and things like this that the Buddha teaches as well. Because as long as you're just chasing after the profits or you're chasing after money or you're chasing after just a title these things are going to burn out and you're going to get to the point where your job feels unmotivating and you might wake up in the morning and really dread or hate going into work each day and you might feel completely unmotivated to go to this actual occupation so if you can get to a point where you've chosen a livelihood that you're so motivated about you would do it at no income or receiving no money whatsoever, then you know that you've reached a right livelihood because you would just do this for the sake of doing it because you just really enjoy it. So this is some of the teachings on right livelihood. Now we move into the mental discipline section of the Eightfold Path, where the Buddha talks about right effort. In what monks is right effort? Here monks, a monk rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind and strives to prevent the arising of unarisen, evil, unwholesome mental states. He rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind and strives to overcome evil, unwholesome mental states that have arisen. He rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind and strives to produce unarisen, wholesome mental states. He rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind and strives to maintain wholesome mental states that have arisen, not to let them fade away, to bring them to greater growth, to the full perfection of development. This is called right effort. So here he's describing four efforts that need to be employed to ultimately go together with these other steps we're about to talk about. Applying the effort to prevent unwholesome mental states from arising in the mind. Applying the effort to eliminate certain unwholesome mental states that are currently in the mind. He teaches to apply the effort to eliminate those mental states because those unwholesome mental states are going to produce unwholesome results. Then if there's any wholesome mental states that are not yet in the mind, he's teaching you to apply the effort to bring those into the mind. And then any wholesome mental states that are currently in the mind, he's teaching you to apply the effort to develop them and bring them to the full perfection, to this growth, to support them, encourage them, and don't allow them to fade. So these are the four right efforts, preventing unwholesome qualities from arising, any unwholesome qualities that are currently in the mind, eliminate those, any wholesome qualities that are not yet in the mind, bring those into the mind, and any wholesome qualities that are currently in the mind, Apply the effort to support them, encourage them, and don't allow them to fade. So this is called right effort. And what, monks, is right mindfulness? Here, monks, a monk resides reflecting on body as body, dedicated, clearly aware, and mindful, having put aside craving and worry for the world. 
He resides reflecting on feelings as feelings, dedicated, clearly aware, and mindful, having put aside craving and worry for the world. He resides reflecting on mind as mind, dedicated, clearly aware, and mindful, having put aside craving and worry for the world. He resides reflecting on mental objects as mental objects, dedicated, clearly aware, and mindful, having put aside craving and worry for the world. This is called right mindfulness. So here the Buddha is talking about the four foundations of mindfulness. What he's explaining to you is to be aware of the mind. The first aspect of this is understanding awareness of mind, that it's important to be aware of what's in the mind because how could you ever apply right effort if you didn't know the unwholesome qualities and wholesome qualities that are in the mind? You wouldn't be able to apply right effort to eliminate and prevent unwholesome qualities or cultivate and bring into the mind and support the wholesome qualities. So firstly, it's important to understand right mindfulness is awareness of mind. Sometimes people use this word mindfulness in ways that the Buddha didn't use it during his lifetime. People might say, can you mindfully carry this glass of water? What they're saying is, can you carefully carry this glass of water? That's not what the Buddha is talking about with mindfulness. So even though other people might use this word in different ways than what the Buddha used it, it's important that you understand mindfulness means awareness of mind. Now going deeper into the four foundations of mindfulness, you'll need to have awareness of the bodily sensations, awareness of feelings, awareness of condition of the mind, and aware of mental objects. This is the life cycle that discontentedness will follow as it's arising. So if there's craving, desire, attachment in the mind, like we learned in right view, then whenever you're getting the objects of your affection, there's going to be these conditioned, pleasant feelings. And when you don't get the objects of your affection, there's going to be these conditioned, painful feelings. But before those feelings arise, there's going to be some bodily sensation. If you have heart palpitations or pressure around the heart, if you have queasiness in the stomach, some people feel tingling in the body. If they have anger, they might feel heat or pressure in the face or the skull. These are all bodily sensations and there's others as well that if you're not aware of them yet, you can start building awareness of these bodily sensations because that's an indication to you that discontentedness is about to arise. And you would like to get aware of those bodily sensations so that you can cut them off and let them go as a bodily sensation. Because if you miss it as a bodily sensation, it's going to become a feeling in the mind. So now when we miss the feelings of the bodily sensations of anger, now ba-boom, anger comes into the mind as a feeling. And now you can cut it off as a feeling, but if you don't cut it off as a feeling, it's then going to affect the condition of the mind. You might experience a few hours or a few days, maybe even a week or so, where you've been angry over something. This is the misunderstanding and the lack of wisdom of right mindfulness and having the awareness of this life cycle of the bodily sensations, of the feelings, of the condition of the mind. And now, because that didn't get cut off, it's going to feed the mental objects. And a mental object in this example of anger would be something like ill will. 
if there's this mental object of ill will, which is like a container that is deeply rooted in the mind, there's this ill will that's deeply rooted because over the course of your life, there's been these bodily sensations, feelings affecting the condition of the mind and now feeding this mental object of ill will and forming that and it becomes more and more deeply rooted. And now the mind's still craving, it's still craving when it doesn't get what it wants. It gets bodily sensations, it gets feelings, affects the condition of the mind, and now it keeps feeding these mental objects. So with right mindfulness, you're essentially becoming aware of those bodily sensations and cutting off and letting go more and more and more of what you're experiencing in terms of these bodily sensations because this is indicating to you that discontentedness is arising. And while you're doing this, this is helping you to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. You're essentially putting a blockade on these feelings so that the discontent feelings never make it to the mind. By cutting it off as a bodily sensation, you're applying the effort through right effort to cut off and let go of any unwholesome mental states that are arising. This would be like if you're taking a boat across the ocean from maybe the UK to Canada you're interested in preventing the water from ever coming into the boat. Because once the water comes into the boat, you've got a real problem to deal with. And now you've got to get it out. And it's a lot harder to do that once the water starts coming into the boat. So if you can cut off and let go of a rising discontentedness as a bodily sensation, you've just saved yourself a whole lot of trouble because now it's not going to become a feeling in the mind. And once it becomes a feeling, now you have to get that out of the mind and now you're affected by that and now it might affect the condition of the mind for a few hours or a few days or maybe a week or so. So by cutting off and letting go of these bodily sensations, having the awareness to be able to do that, now you can work on uprooting something like ill will as a mental object by using loving kindness meditation and practicing loving kindness in daily life, now you can break up this ill will and uproot it out of the mind so that it no longer exists. And this is how you clear the mind and you purify the mind, getting to the point where the mind is now unconditioned. As long as these conditions are in the mind, namely craving, anger, and ignorance, you're going to continue to experience discontentedness. So you'll need to develop mindfulness to be aware of this process that the discontentedness is taking so that now you can cut it off and let it go sooner and sooner. And now you get your arms around this mind having this discipline of the mind. Then there's right concentration. In what monks is right concentration? Here, a monk distant from sense desires distant from unwholesome mental states, enters and resides in the first jhana, which is with thinking and pondering, based in seclusion, filled with excitement and joy, and with the subsiding of thinking and pondering, by gaining inner tranquility and oneness of mind, he enters and resides in the second jhana, which is without thinking and pondering, based in concentration, filled with excitement and joy, and with the fading away of excitement, remaining imperturbable, unable to be upset or excited, calm, serene, mindful and clearly aware, he experiences in himself the joy of which the noble ones say. Peaceful is he who resides with equanimity and mindfulness. He enters the third jhana. 
and having given up pleasure and pain and with the fading away of former gladness and sadness, he enters and resides in the fourth jhana, which is beyond pleasure and pain and purified by equanimity and mindfulness. This is called right concentration. And that, monks, is called the way of practice leading to the elimination of discontentedness. Here, what the Buddha is explaining as part of right concentration is he's explaining the results of what you're going to experience by putting together all the aspects of the Eightfold Path and dialing this in closer and closer. There's these four preliminary phases that the mind goes through before it experiences the first stage of enlightenment. And then from there, there's four stages of enlightenment before the mind is actually enlightened. But these preliminary phases called the jhanas, there's these certain qualities of mind that arise in the mind. And here he's explaining what those are so that you can know that these are starting to occur. These are like giving you glimpses of what enlightenment is like and giving you an indication that you're starting to put together the path to enlightenment of the Eightfold Path. It's kind of like a light flickering and giving you these glimmers of what enlightenment is like by helping you to see that you're putting together the path fairly well. But in order to understand how to practice right concentration, you need to look at other parts of his teachings. This is where he talks about having singleness of mind and focusing on a single object. And he talks about practicing meditation. It's breathing mindfulness meditation that is a rising concentration in the mind so that now you're exercising the mind in meditation. But then you need to practice singleness of mind in daily life where you're not attempting to do multiple things at one time because the mind can't actually do multiple things at one time. It can only do one thing at a time. But if the mind is attempting to do more than one thing at a time, it's going to rapidly cycle from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing to thing to thing. And as it's doing this, then the mind's going to become overactive and anxious. And now when you're at home by yourself, you'll probably have difficulties relaxing. You might feel stress or anxiety in the mind. But when you train the mind to do just one thing at a time, single-threadedly, throughout your entire day, now the mind can have focus and concentration and clarity and deep memory and bring forth the qualities that it needs in order to practice all the other teachings on the Eightfold Path. Because if your mind is rapidly cycling from thing to thing to thing to thing, you're not going to be able to practice something like right speech, for example. It's going to be very challenging for you to practice right speech because the mind is rapidly cycling. You're not bringing forth your concentration to fully focus on the conversation. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have. This is the first chapter of the chapters we're studying today. And I was interested to ensure that we had an opportunity to go through this very thoroughly. You can ask questions by raising your hand in Zoom, or you can ask questions by putting your comments into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. And from there, I'll be able to help you and answer any questions you have on the Eightfold Path. I'm not seeing any questions in Zoom. And I don't see any in YouTube, but let me just check Facebook and see if we have any in Facebook. I'm not seeing any in Facebook either. Oh, let's see. What do we got here? Mm, here's a question from Amina. A quick question about frivolous speech. Sometimes when we are just getting to know someone, there is talk about weather or things like that. Is this considered frivolous? And 
Is it best to keep conversations about more significant topics when possible? So remember, frivolous speech is unbeneficial speech or unpurposeful speech. If you're talking to get to know somebody and getting acquainted with them as a brand new friend or a brand new contact, there's a purpose, there's a benefit there. So you might be talking to them about if they have children, where do they live, you know, things like this. What frivolous speech is, is having a craving, a longing, a yearning to talk. Just yada, 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 you know, just continuous like a rapid fire talking. But if you're talking about you know, where people live and what their background is, what their jobs are, if they have children, you know, do they like living in the area that they're living in, you know, different things like this. We might call that small talk or something like that. There's a purpose behind this. You're getting to know somebody. So this is completely normal. Uh, So you don't need to feel like you need to be talking about these big monumental topics every time you're having a conversation with somebody. You can talk about simple things. You're just not interested in yada, 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 yada. Or the other side of this is if you're in a conversation, sometimes somebody might talk and they might talk for 20 minutes, 30 minutes. You know, if you just sat there, they would just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. Remember that it's a conversation, that we should talk some and then pause, let the other person talk. Then when they talk some, then we listen. And now when they're done, then we talk, right? Whereas if we're just talking for 20, 30 minutes nonstop, this would be frivolous speech, right? Because the mind is craving to just talk and talk and talk and talk. All right, so Amina says that's clear, that's helpful. Looks like we have a hand up in Zoom. Let's go to Max and you can go ahead and ask your question, Max. Uh, I believe I know the answer, but So an enlightened being wouldn't even have these sensations come up. Like they wouldn't have any type of sensation to cut off, such as anger or whatever. They wouldn't have any sensations in the body like that, correct? Exactly. So the mind goes through this transformation where when you're off the path, we're just getting angry. We're getting frustrated. We have no clue what's going on. We have no clue what's causing it. We're blaming other people. You know, life can just be miserable. But as you start learning this path, like right view, you start realizing you're causing this yourself and you start learning about craving, desire, attachment. Then you start learning about right mindfulness, where you learn you need to cut off the bodily sensations, but you're not quite able to do that yet because you're not maybe even aware of the bodily sensations because you haven't accumulated enough mindfulness in your meditation practice yet. So you need three months, six months, a year or so of meditation practice to be able to build up to the point where you can observe these bodily sensations. Some people can observe them right away at the very beginning. Other times it takes a bit more development to to understand that you need to be aware of these bodily sensations and then having the ability to cut them off and let them go. But as you're building your meditation practice and building this mindfulness, you might not be able to just cut off and let go of the arising bodily sensations. You might need to redirect the mind where if you're on the phone with mom and she's yelling and arguing or upset with you or harshness and you feel the bodily sensations coming, you know that it's because of your craving, desire, attachment that you're causing it. And you're not interested in staying in that conversation because you might say something that's unwise. So you might just ask mom if you can call her back later. And now you go for a walk or you go for a bike ride or you go get something to eat or something like this. And this redirects the mind to cut off and let that go. 
But then with consistent long-term training, you eventually get to the point where you're on the phone with mom, maybe she's argumentative with you, you see the bodily sensations arising, and now you can cut it off. You can let that go because you've accumulated enough benefits with breathing mindfulness meditation and practicing generosity. But then once you eliminate the cravings, desires, attachments, and they're all gone from the mind, the mind is actually enlightened. Now there is no cravings that is going to produce discontentedness. So those bodily sensations never arise because there's no anger for sure, but there's not even the slightest uh, irritation or even the slightest uh, discomfort or uncomfortableness. That is all completely eradicated from the mind because there's no craving that's producing it. So those bodily sensations won't actually arise in an enlightened mind because that person has already eliminated craving, desire, attachment. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Let's see. Let me just check YouTube one more time. I'm not seeing any questions there. So it looks like we're ready to... Um, okay, here we go. We have another question. Question is, I'm not sure, this person's name, Yuchit. What are the difference between mindfulness and concentration? So mindfulness is awareness of the mind and what's in the mind, either unwholesome or wholesome qualities where concentration is focus, right? It's having that clarity of mind, that clear comprehension. That's what concentration is, being able to focus on a single object, where mindfulness is having awareness of what's in the mind, okay? All right, so we'll move on to the next chapter, which is chapter 12. And I saw that there are some people who would volunteer to read here. We have one person who's volunteering to read the even numbers. It looks like that's Alasco. So Alasco, you're up for number 12. Um, sir, Max wanted to read this chapter. It's okay, sir. Oh, sure. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm seeing that now. There's a lot of different chats here. So please, Max, go ahead and read chapter 12. Thank you, sir. The world would not lack for our hunts. In whatever teachings and discipline the Noble Eightfold Path is not found, no ascetic is found on the first, the second, the third, or the fourth grade. But such ascetics can be found of the first, second, third, and fourth grade in a teachings and discipline where the Noble Eightfold Path is found. Now, Subhada, uh, in these teachings and discipline, the Noble Eightfold Path is found, and in it are to be found ascetics of the first, second, third, and fourth grade. These other schools are lacking of true ascetics, but if in this one the monks were to live the life to perfection, the world would not lack for arahants. Okay, thanks, Max. So here the Buddha is pointing out the importance of the Noble Eightfold Path. What he's saying is that if the Noble Eightfold Path isn't part of a set of teachings, he's saying that people can't get to the first, second, third, and fourth stages of enlightenment. Because even to get to the first stage of enlightenment, somebody would need to have put together the Eightfold Path really well, specifically the moral conduct, even just to get to the first stage of enlightenment. But each of these steps on the Eightfold Path are actually guiding you to eliminate the various aspects of the Ten Fetters. Tomorrow in the group learning program, I'm going to be teaching the four stages of enlightenment 
and the 10 fetters. I'm gonna be explaining to you each individual fetter and how to eliminate those and how they build up to attaining the first, second, third, and fourth stages of enlightenment. So as the Buddha is teaching you this eightfold path, he's actually helping and guiding you to eliminate these 10 fetters so that you can get to the first, second, third, and fourth stages of enlightenment. And he's saying here that if the teachings that you're learning doesn't include the Eightfold Path, you wouldn't be able to get to the first, second, third, or fourth stages of enlightenment. Because remember, during the lifetime of the Buddha, there were multiple people who were teaching various things. You would think that during the lifetime of a Buddha, everybody would learn from the Buddha. But during the lifetime of a Buddha, not everybody knows that that person is a Buddha. Because there's no outward characteristics of what a Buddha is. The way that people discovered that he was a Buddha is by learning and practicing his teachings and seeing the results that they got. And then knowing his background, that he didn't have any teachers or guides, that he dedicated the rest of his life to sharing the teachings to help countless people get to enlightenment. And he preserved the teachings in such a way that countless more people could get to enlightenment after his death. So these different teachers that were teaching during his lifetime, you know, we don't know anything about their teachings pretty much because they didn't lead to enlightenment. But we know about the Buddhist teachings because they do lead to enlightenment and people got to enlightenment during his lifetime. So he's sharing how important the Eightfold Path is so that you'll really focus on it in order for you to move through those jhanas and ultimately get into the first, second, third, and fourth stages of enlightenment. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Okay, so I'm not seeing any questions on this chapter, so let's move to chapter 13. Who would like to read chapter 13? I'll read 13, sir. Sure, go ahead, Alaska. The difference between a Tathagata, a monk liberated by wisdom. Monks, the Tathagata, the Aha, the perfectly enlightened one, liberated by non-clinging through a fading away of strong feelings toward form, through its fading away and elimination, is called the perfectly enlightened one. A monk liberated by wisdom, liberated by non-clinging through a fading away of strong feelings towards form, through its fading away and elimination, is called liberated, is called one liberated by wisdom. The Tathagata, the Arahant, perfectly enlightened one, liberated by non-clinging through a fading away of strong feelings towards feeling, perception, volitional, formation, choices, decisions, consciousness, through its trading away and elimination, is called the perfectly enlightened one. A monk, liberated by wisdom, liberated by non-clinging, through a fading away of strong feeling, towards feeling, perception, volitional formation, choices, decisions, consciousness, through its trading away and elimination, is called one, liberated by wisdom. Therein, monk, what is the distinction? What is the disparity? What is the difference between the Tathagata, the Aha, the perfectly enlightened and a monk liberated by wisdom? The Tathagata, monks, the Aha, the perfectly enlightened one, is the originator of the path, unarisen before, the producer of the path, unproduced before, the declarer of the path, undeclared before. He is the knower of the path, the discoverer of the path, the one skilled in the path, and his disciples, his, his disciples now reside practice in that path and become possessors 
of it afterwards. This month is the distinction, the disparity, the difference between the photographer, the uh-huh, perfectly enlightened one, and a monk liberated by wisdom. All right. Thank you, Alasco. So here, the Buddha is talking about the difference between what a Buddha is and what an enlightened being is. These are two different things. They're both arahants, meaning they've reached the fourth stage of enlightenment. Both a Buddha and an enlightened being has eliminated the ten fetters. That's how you get to be an arahant. That's how you actually get to enlightenment. But the way that they've done this is completely different. The way that a Buddha or a Tathagata gets to enlightenment is through their own dedication, their own independent journey. They are the discoverer, the declarer, the originator of the path to enlightenment, unarisen before him. So that's what he's explaining, that him as a Buddha, he got to enlightenment on his own. An other person can get to enlightenment and be an arahant, but they wouldn't be a Buddha. They wouldn't be a Tathagata because they're liberated by wisdom, meaning that they've learned the teachings from somebody else. That's the difference between a Tathagata or a Buddha and an enlightened being. They've both eliminated the 10 fetters, but a Buddha has done it on their own, through their own independent journey. They've discovered, declared, they're the originator of that path. And on the other side, this enlightened being they're also enlightened, but they're not perfectly enlightened. They've learned from other people. A perfectly enlightened one doesn't have any teachers. They don't have any guides. And this is why we call them perfectly enlightened, that they understand the path to enlightenment very clearly. It's like putting light bulbs along the path. They illuminate this path very, very clearly so that other people can understand it and get to enlightenment during their lifetime. So they've independently discovered the teachings. They dedicate the rest of their life so that countless people can get to enlightenment during their lifetime. And they leave the teachings in such a condition that countless more people can get to enlightenment after their death. This is what a Tathagata is. The word Tathagata means the one who's discovered the truth or the one who shares the truth. The truth is the path to enlightenment, the natural laws of existence. And by sharing that truth, then others can learn that wisdom and get to enlightenment, but they just wouldn't be a Buddha. There are some traditions of Buddhist teachings that says everybody is a Buddha. But here, you know the truth. Through the words of the Buddha, he's showing you the difference between a Buddha and an enlightened being. So don't be misled in thinking that you are a Buddha because you're going to need help. You're going to need guidance from someone. The last Buddha that the world is currently aware of existed over 2,500 years ago. The Buddha talks in other teachings where he talks about how rare it is that a Buddha arises in the world. So it's very rare that a Buddha will arise in the world. And at this point in time, the world isn't aware of any Buddhas that exist since the lifetime of Gautama Buddha. So that means you and everyone else is going to need teachers and guides to help you on this path to enlightenment. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Okay, I'm not seeing any questions here. So we can move on to our next chapter, which is chapter 14. Who would like to read this chapter? Okay, if no one's offering to read it, I guess I'll go ahead and read it. So it's titled, This Spiritual Life is Not Live for the Sake of Deceiving People. Monks, this spiritual life is not live for the sake of deceiving people and persuading them, nor for the benefit 
of gain, honor, and praise, nor for the benefit of winning in debates, nor with the thought, let the people know me thus, but rather this spiritual life is lived for the sake of restraint, abandoning, freedom from strong feelings, and elimination. So here, the Buddha is explaining that this path to enlightenment is all about restraining the mind, pulling the mind back, because the mind with craving is going to be longing and yearning. It's going to be chasing after the objects of its affection. So what you're interested in doing is restraining the mind and pulling it back, abandoning craving, anger, and ignorance, eliminating that from the mind, which then produces freedom from strong feelings, where you're not feeling these conditioned feelings of pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant, because you've eliminated discontentedness. That's the purpose. This is your individual journey, your independent pursuit to enlightenment. It's not about what other people are doing or how other people are choosing to function. It's about your journey to enlightenment. You're on this independent journey where your teacher is providing guidance to help you, but you're doing the work. It's not for the sake of deceiving people or persuading them or for benefit of gain, honor, and praise, right? Where you're interested in people saying, oh, wow, you're so wise, you're so amazing, you're so kind, you're so loving, you're so generous. You know, you're not looking for all this admiration or honor and praise from people. Also, you're not interested in winning in debates because as you progress closer and closer to enlightenment, you're going to have wisdom that other people don't have. And if you're on this path in order to gain that wisdom and now look so smart and look so bright and win in arguments with people, this isn't going to produce enlightenment if that's what you're actually after. Instead, you're interested in this enlightened mental state. You're not interested in the thought of let the people know me thus, like look how great I am that I'm on this path to enlightenment and I've actually gotten to enlightenment. Well, if the mind thinks that way, you're not enlightened, right? An enlightened being is going to be humble, going to be down to earth, going to be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful. They're not going to think of let the people know me thus, right? Like, look how great and wonderful I am. Admire me. Give me praise. Give me honor. Give me gain. Instead, a person who's on the path to enlightenment would be interested in restraining the mind, abandoning craving, anger, and ignorance, getting this freedom from their strong feelings, and eliminating discontentedness. It's all about your practice and working on your own mind. Because by doing that, it's helping you, it's helping those close to you, and it's helping all of humanity. So staying focused on your own practice as your own independent journey. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Okay, I'm not seeing any questions on this chapter. So let's go to the next one, which is chapter 15. Is there someone who would like to read this? I'll read sir, if um, you don't have anybody else. Sure. Chapter 15, both formally and now with the Tagata teaches the discontentedness and the elimination of discontentedness. So saying, monks, so proclaiming, they have been baselessly, pointlessly, falsely, and wrongly misrepresented by some ascetics and Brahmin blood. The ascetic Gautama is one who leads astray, who teaches the obliteration, the destruction, the extermination of an existing being. As I am not, as I do not proclaim, 
sorry have been facelessly, pointlessly, falsely, and wrongly misrepresented by Somersetics and Brahmin Sars. He said that Adama is one who leads straight. He teaches the obliteration, the destruction, the extermination of an existing being. Monks, for formally and now what I teach is discontentedness and the elimination of discontentedness. If others abuse, criticize, scold, and harass the Tathagata for that, the Tathagata on that account feels no annoyance, bitterness, or sadness of the mind. And if others honor, respect, appreciate, and venerate the Tathagata for that, the Tathagata on that account feels no happiness, excitement, or elation of the mind. If others honor, respect, appreciate, and venerate the Tathagata for that, the Tathagata on that account thinks thus, they performed such services as these for the sake of what had earlier come to be fully understood. All right. Thank you, Alasco. So here, you might think that, again, everybody would understand the Buddha and what he's teaching. And they would think that he's so loving and so kind and so polite and so respectful. But unfortunately, even a Buddha, someone who's fully, perfectly enlightened, entering into the world, there's going to be people who are angry at that person, that are hateful, that are vindictive, that are slandering that person, that are gossiping about the Buddha. This is what happens because people's minds have craving, anger, and ignorance. Those people are going to look at a person who others might know is a Buddha and other people will disparage that person. Other people will slander them and talk bad and they will misrepresent what it is that they were actually teaching and what they were talking about. Because their mind is so muddled, they're going to hear things in one way and then they're going to repeat those things as a way of trying to harm this person who's just trying to bring teachings into the world to help everyone. Well, what is the Buddha bringing teachings into the world about? Well, he says it right here, both formally and now. What he teaches is discontentedness and the elimination of discontentedness. That's all that he's teaching. His entire path is all about understanding discontentedness and how to eliminate it. But people during his lifetime were misrepresenting what it is that he was teaching. He understood this because of the universal truth of impermanence. It's not possible for everybody during the lifetime of a Buddha to understand what it is that he's teaching or to think of him as a polite, kind, friendly, respectful person. There's going to be people who are angry and vindictive and hostile, jealous and envious, trying to knock this person down. That's what unfortunately happens in the world, right? And the Buddha says here, if people abuse, criticize, scold and harass him for sharing the teachings that are explaining discontentedness and how to eliminate discontentedness, he feels no annoyance, bitterness, sadness because of that. His mind is unaffected that people misrepresent and uh, misunderstand what it is that he teaches. But also, if people honor, respect, and appreciate, and venerate him for sharing these teachings, his mind is also unaffected by that. He's not going to get so happy, excited, elated just because people understand what it is that he's actually teaching and they may respect him and they may appreciate him. They honor him. He's not going to get all happy, excited and elated about that because it's only a matter of time before somebody's disrespectful and unkind and scolding him for what it is that they think he's teaching. They don't know what he's teaching or else they wouldn't be scolding him. If they knew what he was teaching, they would 
respect him. They would honor him. They would appreciate him and venerate him. That's what this last paragraph is. The Buddha says, if people honor, respect, appreciate, and venerate him for sharing these teachings, then it's because they understand his teachings, right? That's what he's saying. For the sake of what had earlier come to be fully understood, that they fully understood his eightfold path and all the other teachings that he shared. So therefore, if they understand what it is that he's teaching, then of course they're going to honor, respect, appreciate, and venerate him because they know what it felt like to be angry and frustrated and irritated and all these other discontent feelings. And then having moved their mind closer and closer to this enlightened mental state and maybe even attained it, then they would honor, respect, appreciate, and venerate him. But in those situations, he's not going to allow his mind to be affected by it. So this is where you can apply this to your life as well. That if people during the lifetime of a Buddha disrespect him, they're impolite to him, they misrepresent what he has to share, they're slandering him, they're gossiping him. If people did this during the lifetime of the Buddha towards an actual Buddha, then surely they're going to do this towards you too, right? There's no way that this entire world is going to understand you and that they're going to be appreciative of your existence. There's going to be people who slander you, gossip you. There's going to be people who talk negatively of you. And there's going to be people who talk positively of you as well. And in this situation, don't allow your mind to be affected. So where you see people that are appreciative and honor you and respect you, if you observe any bodily sensations associated with pleasant feelings starting to arise, cut that off because it's only a matter of time before somebody is now disrespectful and unkind and impolite towards you. And when that happens, if you allow the mind to get pleasant feelings due to people being honoring and respecting and appreciating you, then when they're disrespectful and impolite, now you're going to feel painful feelings. So you need to cut these off as bodily sensations. Don't allow your mind to be affected either way. If somebody speaks to you and they're polite, kind, friendly, respectful, maybe they say, oh, Amina, you're so kind, you're so friendly, I really like your smile. You might say, oh, thank you so much, I appreciate your kind words, or whatever you say, right? You might say something like that, or you might just smile, or whatever it is that you decide to practice. But if you observe bodily sensations associated with pleasant feelings coming up, you would like to cut those off. Because it's only a matter of time before somebody says something diminishing and disparaging. And in those situations, if people are being negative and hostile and bitter towards you, you get to make the choice of who you spend time with. You don't need to spend time with people who are hostile, bitter, harsh, aggressive, impolite, disrespectful. If you experience any discontentedness when that occurs, it's because of your craving, desire, attachment. And you need to eliminate that in order to get liberated and get to enlightenment. But that doesn't mean you need to still continue to be around people like this. You can choose wholesome friends, wholesome companions, wholesome comrades. This is what the Buddha teaches. So where people choose to leave your life because they think you're bitter, you're harsh, you're a bad person, okay, see you later, that actually helps you. Because why would you be interested in having a bunch of people around you who aren't actually committed to understanding you and not judging you, not looking down on you? If people are judging you and looking down on you and thinking negatively of you, hey, if you would like to leave, okay, bye, see you later, right? So if there's people that can see the goodness in you and they appreciate that about you, then those are the type of people that you would like to spend time with. All the while, 
looking at your own mind and figuring out what is going on that potentially people are leaving out of your life, right? Trying to figure out, are you using wrong intention or wrong speech or wrong action? What is it that's creating this conflict or this problem? Some cases, it's just people being hateful and misunderstanding you. In other cases, there might be things that you're actually doing that you would like to do that inner work and figure that out. And you've got the Eightfold Path to help you figure that out. And you've got your teacher to be able to come to and talk to about certain challenges that you're having in relationships. But if people don't even acknowledge a Buddha and everybody doesn't respect him, then they're surely not going to all respect you. So don't have that expectation or that craving or that want. Don't be affected by the pleasantness or the politeness, the respectfulness of people. Might say hello or thank you or appreciate your kind words or whatever it is that you might reply back with. But then when people are negative, don't allow that to affect your mind either. You would like to let all of that go and just reside in the middle. Let's see if you guys have any questions on this chapter. Looks like we don't have any questions there. And uh, I see Max says that he's willing to read some more. So we have this next chapter, 16, Max. If you'd like to read that, you're welcome to. Thank you, sir. Words that are just so not otherwise. From the night he fully awakened, monks, until the night he attains final nibbana, final enlightenment, in this interval, whatever he speaks, talks of, and explains, all that is just so not otherwise Therefore, he is called the Tathagata. As he speaks, monks, so he does. As he does, so he speaks. Okay, thanks, Max. Here, what they're saying is from the time that he awoke to enlightenment, which he was 35 years old, until he died at the age of 80 for these 45 years, everything that he spoke about was the path to enlightenment. Because a Buddha knows that their time is limited. They only have, in this case, 45 years to share their teachings. And they're interested in bringing forth their teachings as vibrantly as possible during that period of time so that the largest number of people can get to enlightenment during their lifetime. Because that's going to ensure that their teachings continue forward. So where a Buddha isn't going to be wasting time talking about this thing or that thing, they're going to be sharing their teachings. And of course, they're going to need to get to know their students and ask questions and understand their background and things like this, like we were talking about earlier. But they're not going to be talking about politics necessarily. They're not going to be talking about wars and, you know, who's going to win this and who's going to win that. They're probably not going to be involved in like watching sports and things like this. That doesn't mean you can't do those things. It just means that a Buddha, the way they function is very different than even the average enlightened being. An average enlightened being, their mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy too. But they're out there living life. They're going to work. They're doing different things and you know, having a, a blast with all the different things that they're doing as an enlightened being. Uh, Buddha is having a blast too, but they're going to stay focused on ensuring that they share the teachings that lead to enlightenment from the moment that they attain enlightenment until their very last breath. In fact, the very last breath of the Buddha his very last sentence was a teaching. He delivered a teaching at the very end of his life. His very last words was a teaching. And then here the Buddha is talking about final enlightenment or final nibbana. This is helpful to understand that when you attain enlightenment, 
then you die. We call this final enlightenment. Because during your lifetime, if you get to enlightenment, you eliminate discontent feelings, but you'll still experience painful bodily sensations, like not the bodily sensations we're talking about with mindfulness, but if you were standing too close to a fire, it's going to experience pain. The mind's going to feel that pain. Or if you hit your thumb with a hammer, you're going to feel that pain. But the difference between an enlightened being and an unenlightened being is an unenlightened being hits their thumb with a hammer and now they feel that painful feeling in terms of the physical pain. And then as an unenlightened being, they're going to also feel mental anguish. They might cuss, they might yell, they might throw the hammer across the room, they might get all bent out of shape, right? This is what we do in the unenlightened state. In the enlightened mind, you'll hit your thumb with a hammer but you know that that pain is impermanent. So you don't experience the mental anguish associated with the physical pain. So as an enlightened being, you can eliminate the mental anguish. You can eliminate the discontentedness, but you can't eliminate the physical pain. The only way that you eliminate the physical pain is at death. We call this final enlightenment because you can eliminate all cravings, desires, attachments while you're alive to eliminate mental anguish but there's still one attachment that you can't eliminate as long as you're alive. The mind and the body are together. And as long as they're together, you're going to experience physical pain, but it's gonna be very diminished. It's gonna be very minimal compared to what you experienced in the unenlightened state. In the unenlightened state, you get that physical pain, but then you get that mental anguish with it, which heightens the physical pain and makes it feel even worse. As an enlightened being, when you feel that physical pain, you won't experience the mental anguish. So it'll be very muted compared to what you experienced in the unenlightened state. But now when you die as an enlightened being, the body and the mind separate. And now this is final enlightenment. This is why the Buddha doesn't call it death. When somebody dies as an enlightened being, he doesn't call it death. Because once you're enlightened, you will no longer experience death. What you experience is final enlightenment. So he even refers to enlightenment as the deathless, because once you attain enlightenment, you're now not going to die. There's not this death that occurs, but instead there's the separation of the body and the mind. And now the body goes back to the earth and then the mind does whatever it does. The Buddha doesn't explain what's next for an enlightened being. But as an unenlightened being, these beings are dying, right? They're experiencing death. It's very difficult for people to go through death in the unenlightened state. And there's constant rebirth as part of this. There's sickness, aging, and death because this being is stuck in the cycle of rebirth. But once you get outside of the cycle of rebirth, the mind is now enlightened. You're not going to experience death. You're experiencing final enlightenment. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? All right. I'm not seeing any questions on this chapter. So let's move to the next chapter, which is chapter 17. Who would like to read this one? Okay, go ahead, Alasco. Chapter 17, the Tathagata speech. So too, Prince. One, but speech as the Tathagata knows to be untrue, incorrect, and unbeneficial, and which is also unwelcome and disagreeable to others. But speak, the Tathagata does not speak. Two, 
that speech as the Pagata knows to be true and correct, but unbeneficial, and which is also unwelcome and disagreeable to others. Such speech that the Pagata does not speak. Three, such speech as the Pagata knows to be true, correct, and beneficial, but which is unwelcome and disagreeable to others, but the Pagata knows the time to use such speech. Four, such speech as the Pagata knows to be untrue, incorrect, and unbeneficial, or which is welcome and agreeable to others, such speech that the Pagata does not speak. Five, such speech as the Pagata knows to be true and correct, but unbeneficial, and which is which is welcome and agreeable to others, such speech that the Pagata does not speak. Six, such speech as the Pagata knows to be true, correct, and beneficial, and which is welcome and agreeable to others, that the Pagata knows, so it's time to use such speech. Why is that? Because the Pagata has compassion for all beings. All right. Thank you, Alasco. So this is a deeper teaching on right speech. We've got right speech in the Eightfold Path, which is those four aspects we talked about, teaching to a certain level of detail. Then we've got the five factors of well-spoken speech, which I've taught in other classes, and it's in this book as well, where you learn to speak at the right time, what you say is true, gentle, beneficial, and with a mind of loving kindness. But now here, the Buddha is going into speech even more detailed, which is calling out, essentially ensuring that you know when the right time is to speak. And here he's saying, if it's untrue, incorrect, or unbeneficial, and it's unwelcomed and disagreeable, of course, he's not going to speak that because it's untrue, it's incorrect, it's unbeneficial. It doesn't meet the criteria of the five factors of well-spoken speech. And it's unwelcomed and disagreeable, so he's not going to say that. Then if it's true and correct, but it's unbeneficial and unwelcomed and disagreeable, he's not going to speak that either, right? Because it doesn't meet the threshold of the five factors of well-spoken speech. It's unbeneficial. So he's not going to speak something that's unbeneficial. The third one, he says, if it's true, correct, and beneficial, so now it meets the criteria of the five factors of well-spoken speech, but it's unwelcomed and disagreeable to this person. The Tathagata knows the time to use this speech because there are certain things that you might say to people that are true, correct, and beneficial, but they're unwelcomed and disagreeable to this person. So you need to know the right time to say certain things. And giving you an example of this, let's just say you have a relationship with your teacher and your Buddhist teacher understands your mind. We see that you have conceit, maybe you're lacking generosity, maybe you're lacking loving kindness or compassion or something else like this. Maybe we see that you're jealous and you're lacking sympathetic joy, things like this. A teacher is going to need to be able to share that with you. That's one of the reasons why you have a teacher is because in the unenlightened state, you can't see your own mind 100% clearly because you still have pollution. You have craving, anger, and ignorance. So you need somebody who's further along on the path than you, potentially even enlightened, to be able to see your mind more clearly so that they can then 
point out to you that you're having conceit or ego or that you have ill will or that you're lacking generosity or loving kindness or some other qualities like this. And this is oftentimes unwelcomed and disagreeable to certain individuals. Some students, it's like, hey, you know, give it to me. Let me know, like point out treasure to me. The Buddha talked about this in last week's class in the last set of chapters where a teacher's role is to point out treasure and that's what a student is looking for from their teacher but there's other students because they're struggling with the pollution of mind that it's unwelcomed it's disagreeable for them to hear things like yeah you have ego or yeah you're clinging to your perceptions or yeah you have doubt about the teachings or whatever it is a teacher is only doing this out of compassion for their students but the student being stuck in the darkness and stuck in their unenlightened state they don't necessarily associate the words that the teacher is saying with being true correct and beneficial and that they're only sharing these to actually help the individual student so a teacher needs to know that this is unwelcomed and disagreeable and find the right time to be able to say this and it's not always going to be a hundred percent correct because you don't always know a hundred percent of what's going on in a student's mind a student could be very cheerful very upbeat and bright and you might share some teachings with them and help them see that their mind is still having certain pollutions and they can get very angry with the teacher and if they aren't practicing right view very closely they're going to falsely attribute their discontentedness to the teacher and they're going to try to push the teacher or the teachings away because of their aversion so what the buddha is saying is that he knows the right time to say things that are true correct and beneficial and you might need to look at this with relationship to your life partners your children your employees your co-workers is that as you know these people more and more closely you're going to know what is unwelcomed and disagreeable to them based on their cravings desires attachments so even though you have something that's true correct and beneficial you might need to restrain your mind because you know it's unwelcomed and disagreeable and you might need to find the right time to say this and you might need to prep their mind a little bit before you say something to them and help them to understand now moving into the next ones if something is untrue incorrect and unbeneficial but it's welcomed and agreeable of course the buddha is not going to say it because it's untrue incorrect and unbeneficial it doesn't meet the threshold of the five factors of well-spoken speech if it's true correct but unbeneficial again it doesn't meet the threshold of the five factors of well-spoken speech because it's unbeneficial so even though it's welcomed and agreeable to this person the buddha is not going to say it but if something is true correct and beneficial and it's welcome and agreeable to others the buddha needs to know and an enlightened being needs to know the right time to say this speech because there are certain times where you might not say something even though it's welcomed and agreeable and it's true correct and beneficial let me give you an example if you have a life partner if you have children or a coworker, or a neighbor in my case if i have students or any of these other people if their ego is up really high that's not the time to give them praise and tell them certain things that they do really really well because it's going to send their ego up even higher so the more that you understand about your ego and these other unwholesome qualities of mind you'll be able to observe it in other people's minds 
Not that you're judging them, not that you're looking down on them, not that you think they're a bad person, but you'll observe other people's egos and you'll observe other people's ill will and their cravings and things like this because you know what that stuff is for yourself. So you'll see that other people are having these as well. So when you see and know that you need to say something to somebody or you would like to say something, even though you know it's welcomed and agreeable, you're about to praise this person it might not be the right time to do that. Even though it's true, correct, and beneficial, it may not be the right time because it might send their ego up even higher. And now it's going to be problematic in this relationship that you have. So knowing the right time to say things, even when they're welcomed and agreeable, is very important for you to work on. And this is a deeper level teaching than even the five factors of well-spoken speech. So what you do here is you practice in layers. You first bring your speech up to right speech in the Eightfold Path, where you're not lying, you're not slandering, you're not having harsh speech, and you're not having frivolous speech. Okay, if you got those down, now move into the five factors of well-spoken speech. Work on those, that you speak at the right time, what you say is true, it's gentle, it's beneficial, it's with a mind of loving kindness. Then when you're getting that more and more close, you see your personal and professional relationships are starting to blossom. Now you work on this one and get closer and closer and deeper into this one where you're starting to observe the mind of other people before you actually say certain things. But you need to build up your practice slowly but surely because this requires a more practice to be able to practice it proficiently. So let me see what questions you guys have on this chapter. Let's see. Looks like Amina is asking a question here. She's asking, is this chapter a way of going beyond right speech in the guidance we should try to follow? Yes, that's what we were just talking about. So she probably wrote that before I mentioned what I just mentioned. Yep, she just wrote another one that, yeah, I just mentioned that. Okay, so I don't see any other questions on this chapter. So we'll move on to the next chapter, which is chapter 18. Who would like to read this chapter? All right, I'm not seeing anybody raise their hand, so I'll go ahead and read this chapter. This one is titled, The Tathagata Taught Very Few Compared to Numerous Things He Had Known. On one occasion, the perfectly enlightened one was residing at Kasambi in a Simsapa grove. Then the perfectly enlightened one took up a few Simsapa leaves in his hand and addressed the monks thus. What do you think, monks, which is more numerous, these few Samsapa leaves that I have taken up in my hand or those in the Samsapa grove overhead? Venerable sir, the Samsapa leaves that the perfectly enlightened one has taken up in his hand are few, but those in the Samsapa grove overhead are numerous. So too, monks, the things I have directly known but have not taught you are numerous, while the things I have taught you are few. And why, monks, have I not taught you those many things? Because they are unbeneficial, irrelevant to the fundamentals of the holy life, and do not lead to fading away of strong feelings, to freedom from strong feelings, to elimination, to peace, to direct knowledge or experience, to enlightenment, to nibbana. Therefore, I have not taught them, in what monks have I taught? I have taught this is discontentedness. I have taught this is the cause of discontentedness. 
I have taught this is the elimination of discontentedness. I have taught this is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. And why, monks, have I taught this? Because this is beneficial, relevant to the fundamentals of the holy life, and leads to the fading away of strong feelings, to freedom from strong feelings, to elimination, to peace, to direct knowledge, experience, to elimination, to nibbana. Therefore, I have taught this. Okay, so let me explain this chapter. The Buddha's walking through this forest with a collection of ordained practitioners. And he reaches down and he picks up some leaves in his hand. And he says, what is more numerous, the leaves in my hand or all those in the trees above head? And of course, his students say, all the leaves above the head in the forest are more numerous than those few little leaves that you've picked up in your hands. And the Buddha uses this simile to help them understand that he's teaching them what he understands that leads to enlightenment, those few leaves that are in his hands. While what he understands as a perfectly enlightened Buddha, a perfectly enlightened one, he understands all this wisdom and knowledge represented by all these leaves and the trees overhead. But he's not going to teach all of that because it's going to take an enormous amount of time and too much work on the part of the students to be able to actually learn all of that different wisdom that he's accumulated over multiple lifetimes. So what he teaches is just the leaves in his hand, these few leaves, because that's what leads to enlightenment. And he focuses on those. And for an unenlightened being, that's quite a bit just to learn that. It's going to take a certain amount of time, effort, energy, and resources for someone to be able to learn even those few leaves that are in his hands. So he's going to focus on that. He's not going to teach all the things that he knew. Well, what did he really focus on? He focused on the Four Noble Truths. We're going to see this come up over and over and over again throughout this book series where the Buddha is speaking and he's pointing to the Four Noble Truths because that's the beginning of the path understanding right view in the Four Noble Truths, what is discontentedness, the cause of discontentedness, the elimination of discontentedness, and the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. This is what you need to start with in order to have the breakthrough so that now you can establish right view, no longer blaming other people for the discontent feelings that you have, realize that your mind is causing that itself, and now work to eliminate that. So, let me pause here and see what questions you guys have on this particular chapter. All right, I'm not seeing any questions on this chapter, so we'll move to chapter 19. Is there someone who would like to read this chapter? All right, go ahead, Alaska. Chapter 19, simile of a man were wounded by an arrow thickly smeared with poison. The is now in Karamakoda. A man were wounded by an arrow thickly smeared with poison. And his friends and companions, his siblings and relatives, brought a surgeon to treat him. The man would say, I will not let the surgeon pull out the arrow until I know whether the man who wounded me was a noble or a Brahmin or a merchant or a worker. And he would say, I will not let the surgeon pull out this arrow until I know the name and clan of the man who wounded me. And until I know whether the man who wounded me was tall or short, or of middle height, until I know whether the man who wounded me was dark or brown or golden skin, 
until I know whether the bowstring that wounded me was fiber or reed or sinew or hemp or bark, until I know whether the shaft that wounded me was wild or cultivated, until I know with what kind of feathers the shaft that wounded me was fitted, whether those of a vulture or a heron or a hawk or a peacock or a stork, until I know with what kind of sinew the shaft that wounded me was bound, whether that of an ox or a buffalo or a deer or a monkey, until I know what kind of arrowhead it was that wounded me, whether spiked or razor tip or curved or barbed or cast tooth or lancet shape. All this would still not be known to the man, and meanwhile he would die. So too, Malankuda starts. If anyone should say thus, I will not lead the holy life under the enlightened one until one, the enlightened one, until the enlightened one declares to me, the world is eternal and the world is not eternal. The world is finite and the world is infinite. The soul is the same as the body and the soul is one thing and the body another. And after death, a Tupagata exists and after death, a Tupagata does not exist. And after death, a Tupagata both exists and does not exist. And after death, a Tupagata neither exists nor does exist. That would still remain undeclared by the Tupagata, and meanwhile that person would die. Therefore, Malanka Buddha, remember what I have left undeclared as undeclared, and remember what I have declared as declared. And what have I left undeclared? The world is eternal and the world is not eternal. The world is finite and the world is infinite. The soul is the same as the body and the soul is one thing and the body another. And after death, a Tathagata exists and after death, a Tathagata does not exist. And after death, Tathagata both exists and does not exist. And after death, a Tathagata neither exists nor does not exist. I have left undeclared. And what have I declared? This is discontentedness. This is the cause of discontentedness. This is the elimination of discontentedness. This is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. I have declared. Why have I declared that? Because it is beneficial. It belongs to the fundamentals of the holy life. It leads to liberation, to freedom from strong feelings, to elimination, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nirvana. This, that is why I have declared. Thank you, Alasco. <laughs> All right. So here, this is another simile where the Buddha is essentially using this story of being shot with a poisonous arrow to represent the three poisons, craving, anger, and ignorance. We also call these the three unwholesome roots or the three fires. This poison or this pollution that's in the mind, it needs to get out. It needs to get eradicated in order to get to enlightenment. And here he's describing this individual who gets shot with an arrow, but yet when he gets shot with an arrow, he wants to know all the answers to all these questions, right? There's a surgeon right there, ready to pull out this poison and get it out of him and save his life. But he's saying, hold on, surgeon, before you take out this poisonous arrow, 
Who's the person who shot the arrow? What color was their skin? What class of person were they? You know, what was their bow made out of? What was the feathers on the arrow? What was the shaft of the arrow? And what was the this and what was that? Asking all these different questions that are irrelevant to actually getting the poison out of the actual body to be able to save this person's life. So the Buddha is using this as an analogy because this person would die if all those questions needed to be answered before the poison came out. And it's the same thing that sometimes before a student would be interested to maybe embark on this journey on the path to enlightenment, they want to know all the answers to all these questions before they actually choose to start practicing the teachings. They want to know this. They want to know that. They want to know this. They want to know that. But the thing is, is that this path to enlightenment is so comprehensive and so vast, you wouldn't be able to stand at the starting point, ask all these questions, get all these answers before you choose to embark on your journey. You would need to be walking the path to enlightenment. And then as you're making your way, you're getting answers to your questions as you go, because it's a life practice. If you stood at the beginning and asked all these questions before you ever chose to meditate or before you ever chose to start practicing right speech or some of these other teachings, then surely you will die before these three poisons come out of the mind. You're not going to get to enlightenment that way. So the Buddha gives these 10 aspects of his teachings that are undeclared. And he's saying that I haven't declared these teachings. The teachings that are undeclared are whether the world is eternal, whether the world is not eternal, whether the world is finite or whether the world is infinite whether the soul is the same as the body or whether the soul is one thing and the body is another. After death, the Tathagata exists. After death, the Tathagata does not exist. After death, the Tathagata both exists and does not exist. And after death, the Tathagata neither exists nor does not exist. All of these are undeclared teachings. So in situations where you hear people talking about these things, and they say, oh, the Buddha taught this or the Buddha taught that, then you can see here in his own words that he didn't teach this. So when you hear somebody talking about reincarnation, which is based on a soul going from one body to the other, but it's the same thing where the soul is moving from body to body, then you know that the Buddha didn't teach this because he didn't teach the concept of a soul. It conflicts with the universal truth of impermanence and it conflicts with the universal truth of non-self. So he didn't teach this. And here you can see in his own words that he didn't teach it. Sometimes you'll hear people say that once you get to enlightenment and you die, that you no longer exist anymore. But the Buddha didn't teach that. You can see it right here where he says after death, the Tathagata either exists, does not exist. He goes through all four iterations of that. The Tathagata is him. He's an enlightened being. So if he didn't teach whether he exists or does not exist, or he both exists and does not exist, or he neither exists nor does not exist. If he didn't teach it about himself, then he didn't teach it about other enlightened beings either. So if somebody tells you that you don't exist after enlightenment, this is untrue because it's an undeclared teaching. So here the Buddha is making it very clear that he did not teach these things. These are undeclared teachings. But then he says, well, what did I declare? Once again, coming back to the Four Noble Truths, this is what he declared. What is discontentedness, the cause, the elimination, and the way forward leading to the elimination of discontentedness? And the reason why he taught that is because it's beneficial. 
It belongs to the holy life. It leads to liberation, to freedom from strong feelings, to peace, to enlightenment. That's why he declared it. And those other teachings that he didn't declare, that's part of those leaves, perhaps, overhead, that he knew all this wisdom and all this knowledge, but he only taught those few leaves in his hands. He didn't need to teach all the individual leaves overhead. He just taught what leads to enlightenment, those few leaves in his hand. And that's going to be challenging enough for the average person to understand. But you can do it with gradual learning, gradual reflection and gradual practice, you'll gradually see the progress as the mind moves closer and closer to this enlightened mental state. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Okay, I'm not seeing any questions on this chapter. So let's move on to the very last chapter, which is chapter 20. Is there someone who would like to read this? Oh, Caldon, I saw your hand was up. I'm not sure if you were interested in reading that or not. Or did you have a question on that last chapter that I maybe didn't see your hand? having a question but it was about uh, not this chapter the chapter previous okay let's go back to that one i'll help you what was your question my question is about jokes are they considered the non-beneficial talk jokes yes that's not considered unbeneficial talk you can joke you can laugh you can have fun but if you're going to joke i would advise you to not tell a lie when you're joking oftentimes when we tell jokes we actually tell a lie along with the joke and this is problematic for you because as you're telling your coworkers or your family or your neighbors a joke and you're lying then when you're talking about other things, they don't know whether you're telling the truth or not because sometimes you lie, sometimes you don't. So the Buddha teaches that even when he tells a joke, he still doesn't lie. And it's actually more challenging to tell a joke without lying. So this can bring your practice up more and more. So that's what I would advise you that yes, joke, have fun, enjoy life as part of your path to enlightenment. But as you joke, just be sure that you're still telling the truth as you joke. Okay. All right. So is there anyone who would like to read chapter 20? Okay. I'm not seeing anybody who would like to read that, so I'll go ahead and read it. The chapter title is Instruction Usually Presented to His Disciples. How does Master Gautama guide his disciples? And how is Master Gautama's instruction usually presented to his disciples? This is how I guide my disciples. Agarvarsana. And this is how my instruction is usually presented to my disciples. Monks, material form is impermanent. Feeling is impermanent. Perception is impermanent. Volitional formations or choices and decisions are impermanent. Consciousness is impermanent. Monks, material form is not self. Feeling is not self. Perception is not self. Volitional formations, choices, decisions are not self. Consciousness is not self. All formations are impermanent. All things are not self. That is the way I guide my disciples, and that is how my instruction is usually presented to my disciples. So here the Buddha is explaining kind of what he starts out with. After he teaches this, he then moves into moral conduct. But the very first teaching that he delivers is all about impermanence. Because without understanding the universal truth of impermanence, 
there's no way that anybody's going to understand any aspect of this path to enlightenment. So he starts with the universal truth of impermanence, helping people to understand the five aggregates are impermanent. We talked about the five aggregates last class. The five aggregates are these five collections. These are things that make a living being a living being. Form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness. These five aggregates are the five things that make a living being a living being. And you can see this for yourself. You have physical form. This is the physical body. You have feelings that are experienced in the mind. You have perceptions. A perception is the way things seem to be in the world. They may be true, they may not. Certain beliefs, opinions, and views about the world. You have volitional formations or choices and decisions that you make. And you have a consciousness or a mind. But what the Buddha is saying here is these are all impermanent. Because the more you understand that these things are impermanent, the less likely you are to cling to them and hold on to them. So deeply understanding that form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness are impermanent. They are not permanent. These things are always arising, changing, and then fading away. Next, the Buddha talks about non-self. He says these five aggregates are not the self. So this physical form, this physical body is not the self. The feelings that you experience like discontentedness, pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant are not the self. Perceptions, the way you view the world and the opinions that you have of the world are not the self. Your volitional formations or choices and decisions, that's not the self. That's not who you are. And the consciousness or the mind is not the self. This is not who you are. All formations are impermanent. All things are not self. And this helps you to realize non-self and helps you to get to understanding the elimination of personal existence view, which is the very first fetter. And this needs to be eliminated in order to get to the first stage of enlightenment. Whereas if you think that this body is you, this physical form is you, when you get a wrinkle or you get a gray hair, you might be discontent, right? Or if somebody says something agreeable to you about your physical body, you might get pleasant feelings. Or if they say something disagreeable, you might get painful feelings. And then as you have those feelings, like say you get angry or frustrated, you might think, I am angry or I am frustrated. Well, I am not angry. I am not frustrated. You need to get to the point where you realize the mind is experiencing anger or the mind is experiencing irritation or annoyance. But I am not angry because there's no I here. So separate the feelings from the person. The feelings and the person are two different things. So don't think of the feelings that you have as who you are because if you start experiencing certain feelings, and you think that that's who you are as a person, you can feel diminished and degraded because of that. Just because you experience anger, or frustration, or irritation, annoyance, or any of these other discontent feelings, it doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just means the mind is untrained. So separating and seeing that the feelings are very different than the person. And the same thing with perceptions, the way that you view things your opinions and beliefs about things, the things that you look at the world as in terms of your view, understanding that this isn't who you are. 
And then the formations of volitional formations, the choices and decisions, understanding this is not you either, because certain choices and decisions that you made in the past that were unwise and led to unwholesome results, if you hold on to that, thinking that that's who you are, you might think a very negative way about yourself. And now you might feel degraded or diminished and experiencing discontentedness because you're clinging to these choices and decisions, thinking that that's who you are as a person. But you can separate this and you can see that your choices and decisions are something different than the person. And it might help you to look at other people this way as well. It can help you arise loving kindness and compassion for others where somebody might murder another person and you get angry at them. Well, you can disagree with their choices and decisions, that their choices and decisions were unwise. And you can think to your mind, I wouldn't have murdered that person. I disagree with their choices and decisions, right? So this person's choices and decisions were unwise and you disagree with them. But that person, you can still have loving kindness and compassion for them. This genuine interest in seeing them be well, this active goodwill, this concern for their misfortune. You can have that for the person when you understand that a certain person's choices and decisions aren't who they are as a person. They're just making certain choices and decisions. So you can separate this for yourself and for other people. And this can help you to arise loving kindness and compassion for people when you disagree with their choices and decisions because you're not gonna agree with everybody's choices and decisions. So if somebody's slandering you or gossiping about you or degrading you and talking to others about you in negative ways, you can disagree with their choices and decisions and you can know that, hey, you wouldn't do that because you know that that's unwise, but you can still have loving kindness and compassion for this being because their choices and decisions are something separate from the person themselves. And the same thing for you. It's not who you are as a person. And then the consciousness or the mind, the self-identity that the mind oftentimes holds on to, like I am American or I am a police officer or I am a Buddhist teacher. I am not American. This body was born in America, but I am not American. This body was born there, but I don't identify with I am an American. Because if I did, then when I heard agreeable speech about Americans, there'd be pleasant feelings. But then when you hear something degrading and diminishing about Americans, well, if I am an American, then when I hear this speech about Americans, then because I am that, and now I hear this degrading and diminishing speech, now you're gonna feel painful feelings. But if you disassociate with I am an American, or I am Pakistani, or I am Indian, or I am Arabic, or I am Thai, or any of these other I am, I am. I am a police officer, I am a lawyer, I am a Buddhist teacher. I don't even think like that. I don't even think that I am a Buddhist teacher. I'm providing the role and I'm providing the function of sharing the teachings of the Buddha. But I am not a Buddhist teacher. The mind doesn't identify that way. Because once again, if you hear agreeable things, you're gonna have pleasant feelings. If you hear disagreeable things about Buddhist teachers and I am a Buddhist teacher, now you're gonna have painful feelings. But you can liberate your mind from all of that by letting go of those things and realizing that you're performing certain activities, that you have certain roles in society but that's not who you are as a person. You don't identify with being that 
individual, that person. You're just choosing to perform certain roles. And then you know that those things are impermanent, that you're not always going to be in those particular roles. So this is how you can train the mind because the Buddha is already explaining that that's where he starts with his teachings to help people understand this. And if you understand impermanence, that form, feelings, perceptions, volitional formations, and consciousness are impermanent, and they are not the self, now you can work to eliminate the clinging to these aggregates because this is just causing discontentedness as long as you cling to these things. Let me see what questions you guys have on this chapter. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions at all on this particular chapter. So what I'll do then is I will just thank all of you guys for joining for today's class. Thank you for those of you guys that have read. Thank you for the questions that you guys have asked. I appreciate your involvement in today's class. The next class, we're going to be exploring chapters 21 through 30. So if you guys would like to read ahead and read those before class, not only the words of the Buddha, but remember you've got my reflections in there as well, because I can't teach to that same level of detail that I put into the books. It's not possible. We don't have the amount of time unless we had multiple hours beyond what we have allocated for this class. So by you reading those reflections first, then when you come to class, you can ask questions on them because I've taken my time to put in detail the things to be thinking about related to each one of these chapters based on the words of the Buddha. So if you read the words of the Buddha and you read my words, then you might have certain questions and you'll get much more out of the program by doing the reading prior. And what I suggest is that you read maybe 10, 15, 20 minutes a day. And if you do this little by little, it's like taking little bites. So maybe you read one or two chapters a day. And that's really all you need. Even though you might have a craving to read more, restrain the mind and pull it back. Just do one or two chapters. Take a small little bite. Think about that for a day or so. And now read one or two chapters more. And this is how you gradually trickle the teachings into the mind. And now you've got time to really fully digest the teachings. Where if you sat down for an hour or two hours and tried to read all of this at one time with all the different topics and my explanations and reflections as well, this is going to be very challenging for you to digest that. So take your time and gradually walk through just one or two chapters a day and then sit on that and think about that. Go out into the world and independently verify that. And if you need to ask questions in the Facebook group or send a private message or send a request for a personal discussion, you can do that. But then if you still have questions at the time of the class, this is your time to ask those questions and get clarification. Because remember, you're on this personal journey, right? No one's able to give you enlightenment. You need to choose to actively investigate and examine these teachings. So be sure that you're doing that on a regular basis before and or after class. That's where you're going to get the most benefit is by reading the detailed instructions that I'm providing in terms of guidance on these teachings. And you can get these books at buddhadailywisdom.com. You can download them for free. You can take that file and print it, or you can order a printed copy if you like. Tomorrow in our group learning program, we're going to be learning the 10 fetters, which are the 10 individual pollutions of mind that need to be eliminated in order to get to enlightenment. So I'm going to be teaching those in detail. And I'm going to be showing you the four stages of enlightenment and how you can progress through these four stages of enlightenment. 
Then on Wednesday, I'm going to be starting a four-part series on loving-kindness meditation. So you're welcome to join for that if you'd like to learn loving-kindness meditation or refresh your memory of loving-kindness meditation, and then actually meditate with us as a group to build up your practice around loving-kindness. So thank you all for joining for today's class. I'll see you guys in one of these future classes. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.